Well, it's lovely to be with you once again. It does seem a long time, doesn't it? And as was said earlier, we were all in short trousers when I started coming here. Well, I was, certainly. Uh, so it's great joy and privilege to be with you once again. I'm very grateful for the kind invitation to join you today. Uh, I would be very surprised if there are not uh, uh, certainly a a number of you here who have been praying about certain very important things for quite some while. Perhaps some of you have been praying for unsaved loved ones for many years. Or perhaps you've been praying for loved ones who once walked with the Lord but no longer show any interest. Maybe you've been praying for quite some time about issues of unemployment. Maybe you're unemployed and have been for a while. Maybe as a result of this pandemic. Or maybe others that you know and love in that situation and you've been praying for them. Maybe it's a matter of illness. Like Paul praying for this thorn in the flesh to be taken away and you've been praying that your medical condition might improve or that some remedy might be found for you or for some loved one. Paper, you've got awful neighbours. And, uh, you know, you keep asking the Lord, Lord, I can't wait for this for sale sign to go up next door. And maybe you're praying for some resolution to even something like that. And I know that churches like yours and ours and many others have for years been praying for revival. But the problem is, God doesn't seem to be listening. Nothing's happening. Nothing's changing. And that was a situation that the prophet Habakkuk faced in 609 BC. He'd been living under the reign of a man by the name of Eliakim, Eliakim, whose name actually got changed to Jehoiakim. And he'd been king in Judah for getting on for 11 years. And the sad thing about him, we're told in 2 Chronicles 36, is that he'd undid and reversed all the good things that King Josiah prior to him had been doing. And consequently, he led the nation back into a state of backsliding and idolatry and evil. In fact, it says of him that Jehoiakim did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it was living in this situation when all the good things that had gone on in the nation previously had now been all reversed and the nation had drifted back into godlessness, that it was in that circumstance that Habakkuk brought to God his despairing petition. He brought to God his despairing petition. We see him talking about it in verses 1 and 2. 
And I've just got to find it now because for some reason I've turned over in my Bible. There it is. Where he says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out, violence, and you do not save. He was in a situation that's not exactly like ours, but as I've just been saying, these circumstances occur often to many Christians where there is a desperate situation that they are deeply concerned about, that they are in despair about. And they cry out and they call to help for God and you may be one such person year after year. And it seems as though God is not listening. He sits on his hands and he doesn't come to help. And so Habakkuk pours out the desperation of his heart. Verse 3. Why, Lord, do you make me look at injustice? Constantly around him, he's seeing injustice being done. Why, Lord, do you tolerate all the wrong that's going on? The destruction, the violence, the strife, the conflict that abounds. Lord, can't you look at it all? I'm having to face this every day, Lord. Why aren't you doing anything about it? And he tells us in verse 4, his uh, appreciation of why it's like this. It's because the Lord is paralyzed, he says. The Lord is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. Justice is perverted. Now, judges make the wrong decisions. They acquit the guilty. And they charge the innocent and so on. And of course, the reason why that is in the situation it is, is because godless law had replaced God's law. God's law had been put to one side, and other laws of men, Jehoiakim and his advisors, they brought in other laws instead. And consequently, corruption began to abound. And one of the signs of this, as we see in verse 4, is that the wicked hem in the righteous. The wicked hem in the righteous. That is, that the wicked, in controlling this situation, they silence the righteous voice. They close down honest opinion. They won't let those who want to speak for God speak, silence them, keep them quiet. The righteous were ignored, sidelined, even ridiculed. Does any of that ring a bell with you today anywhere? You see, the fact of the matter is this that setting aside God's law always leads to ungodly legislation. You either have God's law or you have ungodly law and ungodly legislation. You can't have a godly nation ruled by ungodly legislation. It's impossible. 
So if you've got godless legislation, you're going to have a godless nation. What do we see today in our own land? God's law on marriage replaced by a man's invention of godless law. Respect for life replaced with a disregard for life. 200,000 babies last year Killed in their mother's womb. 200,000 in one year in our country legally. And if the godly speak up, what happens? Vilified on social media. Lose their jobs. Disciplined at work. Taken to court. And the righteous voice is silenced and pilloried. And in the meantime, the nation degenerates. That was Habakkuk's despair. As he brings it to God, but Lord God, you don't listen. Why do you tolerate all this wrong? Just as a point there, don't be afraid when there are things that you are grappling with that you want to complain about. In fact, in the NIV, it's headed Habakkuk's complaint. Dear friends, don't be afraid to complain to God. He doesn't mind. He doesn't mind. Read through this book of Habakkuk as he brings his complaints to God. God never once tells him off. Never tells him off. Because you see, God is a God who knows the depths of this man's heart. What is he doing here? He's pouring out his feelings. He's saying to God, Lord, I'm desperate about this sad and awful situation in our nation. We're supposed to be the people of God and look at what's going on. Lord, why don't you do something about it? And indeed, as we're going to see, God does the opposite. He accepts his prayer, receives this man. Don't ever be afraid to take your complaints to God. He understands. And so he understood Habakkuk and his deep, deep concerns. And God answered him in verses 5 to 11. God answered him. But what did he answer him with? He answered him with a shocking revelation. God answered Habakkuk with a shocking revelation, verses 5 to 11. God starts off, in effect, by saying to Habakkuk, right, Habakkuk, okay, well now... The first thing you need to do is instead of looking down and around at the desperate situation of your people, look up a little bit to the international scene. Because I'm going to tell you something that's beyond the borders of your land. It's not just around Jerusalem. It's not just about Jerusalem. It's not just about Judea. It's about the nations. He says, look at the nations. Look at the international scene and watch 
and be utterly amazed. Because God says to him, what I'm about to tell you is going to blow you away. It's going to blow your mind. Why was it going to blow his mind? Well, he says, you wouldn't even believe it if it was told you. If the prophet Jeremiah was to come along and say to you, Habakkuk, this is what God is going to do, you wouldn't believe it, Habakkuk. I am raising up the Babylonians, verse 6. I, says God, I am raising up the Babylonians. Now what kind of people are the Babylonians? Well, they were the rising power in the north, the Babylonians. They were, they were now at the stage where they were beginning to expand their empire. They were crossing their borders, their armies were going out and, and the surrounding peoples were already being conquered. And God says, that's happening because I'm raising them up. And then it's almost as though God wants to hit Habakkuk between the eyes and, 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 and really get him to focus on, on what the situation is because now he gives the most graphic descriptions of these awful people, the Babylonians. We haven't got time to look through each verse but I'm just going to give you a quick Quick review of these verses. First of all, they're ruthless. They're an impetuous people. They sweep across the whole earth. They come quickly. They advance like a desert wind. And they gather prisoners like the sand. I think the picture is here of a whirlwind coming across the desert. And as the power of the wind swirls and comes across the desert, it picks sand up. And carries it away. A few years ago, uh, there were storms in the Sahara Desert, in a, a particularly stormy, uh, 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 what's the word I'm after, atmospheric conditions. But the thing was that they were coming our way. There were these storms in Sahara and the, the direction of the weather was to come up our way. And one morning I went out into the driveway and my car was covered in a sprinkling of sand. I got the Sahara on a 102 Coombe rise, you know, what had happened? The whirlwinds in the Sahara Desert had picked up the sand, carried a thousand miles north and dumped it on my drive. Not all of it, mine, but just, just some of it on my drive, on my car. And that seems to be the picture here. These people, these Babylonians, they come through a country and as they come through the country, they gather the people and carry them off like a whirlwind carries off the sand. And then they sweep past like the wind. These, are, these, these, are, these people move, they're fast, they, they, they don't come slowly. Their horses are swifter than leopards. Their cavalry gallops headlong. They fly like a vulture and swoop to devour. What we've got here is an ancient form of blitzkrieg. That's what this is. This is how they come on a nation. Says they laugh at all fortified cities. Nothing stands in their way. They're rapacious. They seize dwelling places. They take everything that people own. They're fiercer than wolves at dusk, like a ravenous wolf. 
and they are bent on violence. So they couldn't care about the population. If they want to kill, they kill. If they want to rape, they rape. If they want to murder, they murder and so on. They are bent on violence, it says. And then they are proud and idolatrous. They are a law to themselves. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They promote their own honour. They're proud and arrogant. Their own strength is their God. They in effect worship themselves. Their attitude is nobody can stand in, in front of us. Nobody can put us down. We are the people. And consequently, they are feared and dreaded by anybody in their path. But perhaps the most shocking thing that God says about these people is at the end of verse 11, when he says of them, they are guilty men. They are guilty men. The point of that is this. These people are actually worse sinners than the backslidden sinners of Judah. The people in Judah have gone away from God and are bad enough. But these people that God is raising up, they are worse. Their guilt is deeper. They are worse. And yet here's God raising up and using these violent, wicked people. And he's going to use them to punish the less wicked people of Judah. You see what was happening here? It's what Paul says in the New Testament. He is the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. You see, folks, it's a very dangerous thing for a nation, a government, a people, to deliberately set themselves against God, which is what the people of Judah had done, and Jerusalem. They had, in effect, risen up and waved their fist in the face of God and said, no, we are not going to have your laws. We're not going to live your way. We are not going to live according to your word. We're going to go our own way, do our own thing in our own time and manner. It's a very dangerous thing for any people to set themselves up deliberately against God in that way. Why? Because as we sung, and as this, this book is telling us, God is the sovereign God who can raise up what and whoever he likes, whenever he likes. So he can rise up a famine, earthquakes, fires, storms, pandemics. He can even raise up the Taliban to take over a nation. He could even raise up a people like the Taliban to invade our country. Because he is God. He is the sovereign God. That was the shocking revelation that God gave 
to Habakkuk. You see, God was saying to Habakkuk, oh, you think I've not been listening. You think I've just been sitting here on my hands and just letting things happen. You couldn't be more wrong. I might not have been answering your prayers in the way you wanted me to answer them, but (laughs) don't you worry, I've been very busy raising up these Babylonians, organising them, bringing them. They are my work. Oh yes, I've been listening and they are going to be the instruments of my wrath on the people, your people's backsliding. Well, as that shocking revelation dawns on Habakkuk, he then raises what to him is a very disturbing objection in verses 12 to 17, a very disturbing objection. Uh, he, he kind of has come, well, yes, Lord, he's saying, verse 12, I, I realise that, yeah, you are the sovereign God. Are you, you are the God from everlasting, are you not? Uh, you're my God, the great God. Uh, you're my holy one. And the fact of the matter is, dear gracious God, no matter what you do, your people, like you, will never die. So actually, whatever the Babylonians come and do, we are still going to be safe in your hands. Okay, that's fine in a sense, but... Here's, here's Habakkuk saying, but I do realise now you have appointed these people to come and execute judgment. That's execute judgment on us. And you have ordained them to come and punish us. Why? Verse 13, because your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrong. See, here's Habakkuk thinking about the desperate situation that his nation and people are in, saying to himself, God isn't looking, God isn't listening, God isn't answering. And yet all the time, you see, God is looking with abhorrence on what these people are doing. He's listening to their wickedness and he won't put up with it forever. He's too pure to look at it. In other words, he's too poor to keep on countenancing this kind of behaviour. He's too good and pure and holy to keep on tolerating the wrong of these people. But then, of course, comes Habakkuk's real objection. Because then he says, but why then, verse 13, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why do you tolerate the wickedness of the Babylonians? I don't get it, is what he's saying. I just don't get it. Okay, I can understand you. You're not going to tolerate us and our wickedness, but they are worse. How can you put up with them if you won't put up with us? Seems to me that that's Habakkuk's disturbing objection. And yet, you see, here's Habakkuk picturing how this is going to work out. Lord, I don't get this. And here's the reason. It's as if, he says in verses 14 through to 17, he's saying, it's as if your people are like fish in the sea. 
And uh, we're kind of without any leader. You see how he says that in verse 14. You've made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures with no rule. Did you remember in the book of Judges, those of you that know your Bible, the people in those days had no king, so they did what was right in their own eyes. He's picturing that kind of situation. The fish just swim about, don't they? That's what they do. He says, and that's what our nation's like. There's no real leadership here so people are doing what they want and what they think is right in their own eyes and Jehoiakim the king is doing exactly that and leading us in that way and so he says we are like the fish in the sea but these Babylonians are like the fishermen they come along with their rod and their hooks and their nets and their dragnets and what do they do? They fish us out. They take us captive. They defeat us. They'll come and ruin our cities and towns and villages and turn us into slaves. And as a result of their conquest, they live in luxury. Of course they do. They loot everybody's houses, pinch everybody's money, take off any nice clothes that they find. Yeah, they just take it all, enrich themselves as they destroy nations. And so Habakkuk asks the question in verse 17, Lord, are they going to keep on emptying their net? Is this what they're going to keep on doing? They come and they fill their net with fish. In other words, they come and they take, they, they take captives and they, they take everybody's possessions and then they take it away and they, they distribute it among themselves and they come back and they gather another lot. Are they going to keep on doing this? Are you going to allow them to keep on doing this? Including to us. You're going to allow these people to keep on destroying nations without mercy. And the awful thing about it is, as it says there, they sacrifice therefore to their net. Verse 14, verse 16, sorry. It comes back again, you see, to their idolatry. They, in effect, worship themselves. They've set themselves up as God, in effect. We can do what we like. Nobody can stand in our way. Are you going to tolerate all this, Lord? Are you going to put up with all this? I don't understand why you're allowing it. And that reminds us that God's ways are often a mystery. Have you not asked yourself this week, why has God allowed the Taliban again to take over Afghanistan? And we've got Christian brothers and sisters who live there, haven't we? Why, Lord? It just don't seem right, does it? Here are these arrogant, idolatrous people conquering exploiting, violent, 
Why? You don't understand it. I don't get it, Lord. The problem is that we shouldn't always expect to get it. <laughs> we often think we ought to be able to understand it all and work it all out. That's because we like, that's what we like to do. But as Isaiah said, my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither your ways are they my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. You can't always expect to work it out. God's ways are sometimes a mystery. But one of the amazing mysteries is this, and we do know this. We can at least work this out because it's worked out for us. The amazing thing is this, that God, the sovereign God, the everlasting God, who has Habakkuk says is our rock, our strength. He is the God who can use bad things to bring about much good. He's the God who can use bad things to bring about much good. Today we look at the land of Afghanistan. And I can't work it out. How is God going to bring anything good out of that? Don't ask me, I haven't a clue. But he can. Do you remember when his brothers sold, sold Joseph into slavery and later on when he'd resettled his brothers and their families in Egypt, he's able to say to them, you meant it to me for harm, but God meant it for good to bring about the saving of many lives, and he did. When everything looked black and when poor old Joseph was in the dungeon and in the prison and then when he'd been forgotten uh, by the butler who had asked him to remember him to Pharaoh and he forgot him for another two years. Another two years went by and there's poor old Joseph still in prison. God still meant it for good. God's time was being waited for and it resulted in the saving of many lives and the greatest good this world has ever known was done by the greatest evil the crucifixion of Christ that was the greatest evil this world has ever perpetrated to crucify God's son and it was done by wicked hands Jesus was handed over according to the foreknowledge of God his father and people with wicked hands took him and crucified him, Acts chapter 2. And that awful deed, that tremendous wickedness, resulted in the greatest good the world will have ever seen. Many, many, many across the whole world being saved. And that's what God is like and that's the circumstances with which Habakkuk was struggling and you know God can bring about good for you you may have a bit of an awkward bit of a nasty boss at work hope you're not an awkward nasty boss but you may have one who is as I mentioned earlier you may have terrible neighbours 
real nuisance. You may have extremely difficult children or extremely difficult relations. You may have a moaning church member. I don't suppose you have it. Jolly well. But you never know. They pop up from time to time. You may have a moaning church member. I've got to be careful who I'm looking at. You may think I'm talking about you. You know, and they're, they're a pain to you, perhaps. But the thing is, God may well be doing something good here, even through them. So maybe, like Habakkuk, we need to ask the question, Lord, I don't get it, but teach me what you're doing. Help me to see it, Lord. Help me to see what good you may be doing, even for me, in these circumstances. What are you saying to me, Lord? What are you teaching me? And finally, here in verses 2, 1 to 5, we have the fact, 1 to 4 rather, we have the fact that God was teaching Habakkuk that there is a crucial division. There is a crucial division. See, it's interesting that despite Habakkuk's despair, shocking revelation he received, his failure to grasp all of this, he nevertheless begins to understand that God is making out his way. He's doing his purposes here. He's teaching Habakkuk something. And so Habakkuk's response is to say, I'm going to stand and I'm going to watch, chapter 2, verse 1, and wait to see what God is going to say and what God is going to do. He's going to wait, of course, to watch and see for the invasion of the Babylonians. But what is God going to say in all that? What is God going to do in all of that? I'll look to see, he says, what he will say to me. And so he'll help me to understand an answer to this complaint. And do you know, I've felt myself today thinking, that's about all our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan can do now, isn't it? There's nothing much they can do, if anything at all, to help themselves. There's very little the nations of the world can do to help them. But they can do this. They can go to God and watch and pray and wait and see. And I think it's incumbent upon Christians like you and me to do that with them to go to God and to watch and to wait and to pray and to see what God is going to teach us and what God is going to do. And how is he going to do it? Well, he tells Habakkuk, write down this revelation. There's another revelation coming and God will, and if he spares us, we're going to, I'm due to come back next week and look at the next part of this. This new revelation that God is going to give, he said, I want you to write it down and make it clear and plain so that this message can be taken out. This message I'm going to give you now, I'm going to explain more to you. I want you to take it out and I want it to go out and be shared with the people. 
And tell them, this thing, it, it awaits its appointed time. It will not prove false. All of this will certainly come to pass. But the point that God is making here in these verses is this. But the question then is, what are they going to do with it? This message I'm going to give you is for taking out. But how are they going to receive it? What are the people going to make of it? Verse 4, there are those who are puffed up and their desires are not upright. There are the unrighteous people. These backslidden people of Judah, are they going to receive the message? What about when this message reaches the Babylonians as they invade the land and they get to hear of this message? What are they going to do with it? Well, they're going to reject it. They're not going to receive it. Some of them will laugh at it probably. Others will dismiss it. Because it is only the righteous that are going to live by faith. It's only the righteous that are going to grasp this message and take it to heart. Put their faith in the one who has given it. Look to him. Trust in him. Rely on him no matter what. Only the righteous are going to do that. It's the righteous that will live by faith. It's the righteous that will believe the message. It's the righteous that will trust in their God. And they will rely upon the sovereign God to keep them safe and to see them through the impending disaster that he is sending upon them. And the fact of the matter is, dear friends, that how people respond to the message of God still divides the righteous from the wicked today. There is no difference today. The righteous become righteous through faith. They are given a righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. It is to all who believe. They become righteous through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Saviour. They take to heart the message of the Son of God, that He came into the world, that He lived that pure righteous life and sacrificed it for a sinner like you and like me. He took that life to the cross where there he bore our sins in his body on the tree and where he carried our condemnation and where he took away our guilt. And then he rose and then he ascended where he intercedes for his people and has promised that he will return. And the righteous, they take that to heart, they believe that, they take hold of it and then they live by that message. They rely on that Saviour. They trust in his promises. They watch for him. They wait for him. They pray to him. They expect him to return. They receive his message. They read his word. And they press on in faith no matter what. Whether they can understand it or not, They trust him. 
That's what the righteous do. But the unrighteous don't believe. They won't trust themselves to Christ. They won't take the message of salvation to their hearts. They lay aside the warnings of judgment. They won't listen when they are told that God will punish those who do not know him and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They won't end up among the righteous. Have you begun to live by faith in Christ? Has he become your saviour? Have you received him? Have you took him to your heart and trusted in him as your Lord and saviour? And are you living in reliance on him, looking to him daily, trusting him and relying upon him? Is that how you are living? Are you living by faith? I want to encourage you, urge you, make sure faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the basis of your life for the rest of your life if you're not sure about this talk to someone tonight before you go don't go home rejecting the message of God's great salvation